Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Mike Cosper. He's the author, most recently, of Recapturing the Wonder, Transcendent Faith in a Disenchanted World. Mike's the founder of Harbor Media, where he produces podcasts for Christians in a post-Christian world. Prior to that, he was an executive pastor at Sojourn Community Church in Louisville, Kentucky. We had a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Mike Cosper. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Hey, I am not just a reader of your book and a listener of your podcast. You had Greg Thornburg. Thornbury. Thornbury, yep. Thornbury from King's College on. That was a great interview. He kicked me off college radio <laughs> my sophomore year of college. What did you do? I uh, made fart noises. <laughs> like, I, I was, at, you know, like I was at Messiah College and we. My buddy Drew Catapano, who was, you know, one of those guys who, you know, was on Long Island. The ten percent of every Christian college just just went there and was not a Christian. And I felt like I went to Jersey, like led to Christ, wasn't raised in the church. I was, I grew up at like Jersey public schools. And he, you know, he, I was like, oh well, I'm not religiously connected, but culturally connected. We wanted to have like a Howard Stern morning show, and we broke the caller record. In the morning, like we're, but I was like, like, how are we going to pitch this? We just wanted to have, a, and we wanted to call it the Sausage Kings because <laughs> of that link, it, that uh, that clip in um, Ferris Bueller, the yeah. Sausage King Kings of Chicago. Of Chicago. Yeah. So that was like we played that, whatever, and like it just like was we were terrible. He should have kicked us off. Right. We're like we want to redeem comedy for Christ, right? And then we found the BBC sound effects things that no one had opened. <laughs> <laughs> and that was not good. Yeah, that got you kicked off. Yeah. Well, that's so good. you were a founding pastor of a church. Yep. And now you founded a startup podcast thing. That's right. Is the hardest transition, like, you're a pastor and you got to self-promote, but you shouldn't feel like you have to. Right. And now you have to self-promote, but now it's like a thing. At least you were self-promoting for Jesus, so you have to self-promote for Jesus, so it's excusable. Now you're promoting for a thing that is also for Jesus, but are people like, are people getting saved? Where's the mission fund? Oh, wait, you're reading books and telling people how Jesus is relevant? Like, why should we give to that? What are the, is that a hard transition? Yeah, I mean, I think the hardest thing about transitioning off of uh, a pastoral staff, like far harder than kind of stepping into the different challenges of the startup world, um, is just letting go of what you're of what you've built, you know, handing it off to other people and letting them, you know, letting it become something different, which is what, what happens as soon as somebody else has the reins of it. Um, Where is the church that you founded? It's in Louisville here. So should you, are you in the church? Yeah. Yeah. I'm still connected to the church, still serve as an elder on the church. uh, uh, So you sound like the worst elder in the world because everybody (laughs) knows you're a pretty smart guy, right? Are you the smartest guy on the elder board? (laughs) Wait, who has read yeah. more books than you on the elder board? Oh, so we've got like two New Testament professors from uh, from Southern Seminary on there that are far smarter and better read than I am, guaranteed. Who's not a professional Christian on the elder board? <laughs> quite a few. We have quite a few non-professional Christians. So, so do the non-professional Christians like you, who are still sort of a professional, <laughs> do they like you 
or the New Testament guys more? <laughs> I don't think I don't think it works that way. Uh, now, yeah. people in, in church boards are above that. I mean, people in secular world say, "Oh, I like this guy more than that right. guy, or that gal more than that gal." But no, in the church, everybody loves everyone the same. That's kind of the. That's kind of the. That's kind of what you hope for. You hope for. Yeah. I mean, it's the whole idea of plurality. We're all supposed to be equals, right? So we all love each other the same. It's a big happy love fest. Well, everybody, we need to all move to Louisville, Kentucky, right now because the kingdom has come. There's an elder got board a, where, got where everybody likes to do it. So, but isn't that in all seriousness a challenge though? Like, yeah. How do you guys work that out? Because I think that sounds like the hardest kind of relationship in the world. Like, if you're handing something off and you're, you guys must have a tremendous amount of trust. Yeah, I mean that's true. There, there, there is a lot of trust. I think a bigger factor in it for me was kind of a sense of what God was doing with me in my vocation. Um, it felt very clear to me that it was time for me to step into something different. Um, in fact, it had it had felt clear for, to me for a couple of years that it was time for me to step into something very different. And so, doing that, um, did your sermon suck? <laughs> So I wasn't the preaching pastor. I was I oversaw the 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 music ministry primarily, um, and then served as sort of an executive pastor that did all kinds of things over the years. I mean, everything from capital campaigns to construction programs to uh, yeah. I mean, I kind of I wore lots of different hats. Um, so no, I don't think it was. I don't think it was a point where like the ministry. It wasn't an issue where the ministry wasn't thriving. It was just. It was definitely like a crossroads in my life where it was like, do I continue to do this for the next 30 years until I retire? Or is there something different that I want to do? And we, we grew, we saw the church grow from, I mean, it started with 12 people gathering in an apartment and it grew to, you know, uh, 4,000 people at four campuses, you know, all across the city. And so again, it's not like ministry wasn't thriving. It's not like things weren't going good. Um, but my role had definitely changed where I had gone from being, you know, we ran an art, we ran a center for the arts for a few years that was this really cool music venue and art galleries and all of this. Um, I'd gone from being real hands on with, with projects like that and projects like recording projects with the musicians in the church to doing more and more sort of executive leadership management kind of stuff, which is just, I just wasn't wired for. Like, I like to make stuff. Um, why, so, why did they target you for that? Like, why would, was it just that you like, you weren't just artistic, but you could get things done and like, well, Hey, he's the get it done guy. Like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably right. Like I was the, and it wasn't that I was like targeted for it. Like I showed up for it. I was like, right. Oh, I can get that done. You know, I'll take over. I'll take responsibility for that. But and for you, listeners who are thinking about shifting gears, like, did you have apprehension at first when they said it? About like stepping into some of those other roles? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Why did you do it? Uh, it felt like the right thing to do at the time. <laughs> I don't. I. I've in some of the cases. I mean, in different. In different. Uh, so, for instance, there was there were seasons where I'd step in and take over like a capital campaign. There was literally nobody else ready to do it, and I felt like I had the competency and the understanding of the church and the relationships that happened to make a thing like that work um to do it and so i would do it and and they all went fine i mean it's not like it's not like i was bumbling around in the dark like i think vocationally for me like my sense of gifting um uh i don't feel 
I don't feel out of my element in the midst of all of those conversations. It's just not what I want to do every day. Does that make sense? Is that the curse of the gifted person? In some level, like I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and they're incredibly well done. Thanks. And you have on gifted people. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, and you have a, a knack of connecting with gifted people, you guys. Like, it, it, and that is that the curse of the gifted person on one level that you wind up saying yes to things like the people that aren't like on one level, everybody's gifted, right? But like mm-hmm. some people have the, a weird smattering just because of social location, grace, white privilege, <laughs> right. socioeconomic, a, we, a weird variety of things like yeah. that, that. You're, the, the the fruit has bloomed in a way that you can do a lot of things. And is it, is it harder? Is the fall harder when you start saying no? Or is it easier because you've done a lot of things well? I mean, how is that when you say, hey, look, I want to cut back, especially mm-hmm. in the midst of success. Mm-hmm. Like, I, 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 like, I'm not crashing and burning here. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> there are people like, hey, yeah. what do you mean you're cutting back? Right, right. You, you know, for me, it was... It was a real sense of like, you know, the old phrase, jack of all trades, master of none. Like, I feel like I'm a good, in, in a lot of these roles that I played, I was, the, I, was, I was the good guy to come in off the bench, right? I wasn't your starter. Um, you know, I've been a musician my whole life. Um, I'm never going to be like a Nashville session musician that's going to be able to walk in and blow somebody away. Um, but I'm a pretty decent guy that if you need somebody for six weeks on the road, uh, to, to, to play, you know, to play guitar for you. I'm that guy. Like I do, I would did, do that. Did you well. want to be a Nashville session guy? At one point in my life. Yeah. And what I is a Nashville? I have, okay. I just, so one what's point that? I don't have the chops. What's that life like though? You imagine like, okay. And you're doing in your fantasy when you're the Nashville session guy, right? In, in my fantasy or what it's really like for those guys. Well, for you, like in your, cause you know, both ends. Right. But like, right. well, also, also what's your, tempered fantasy so early on so are you thinking like okay we're wailing out then we're going to the afterwards we're going to the kind of like barbecue place we're having a few beers we're talking about the the navigating the you know delicate thing between the sacred and the secular and hey we're consumer good and a commodity on one hand and yet we're real people are really being blessed through us on another and then we have this real camaraderie, and also we put this thing of beauty in the world. Was that yeah. like the fantasy? The fantasy for me was because I knew a few folks who did it. Um, the fantasy for me was this idea that every day is a little different. You're involved in all kinds of different music and um, and all different genres, different people. It's always exciting. You're always kind of being thrown into the fire, or, or better metaphor, thrown into the pool and. Uh, what you know, sink or swim uh, on every single day, but doing it as a musician—that um, was kind of the fantasy to me. Uh, and I think the tempered fantasy is that's probably, in some ways, very much what it's like. But it's very blue collar, and it's uh, and it's feast or famine for the for the folks I know that are trying to make their careers that way. But when you realized, so you described that in pretty realistic terms, right? Did you have that beat on it before you realized you didn't have the chops? Yeah, I did. Um, and you still wanted it. You were still kind of like... I still wanted it. Cause, because I like I, that. Yeah. No, I still wanted it because it, it, it was still a life I found kind of compelling and interesting. So, um, But yeah, then I realized I didn't have the chops. And like I said, I think that's been my, my challenge as, in vocation has been to go, okay, I can kind of do this handful of things. 
um, what am I, what am I actually really good at and what do I really want to give my life to? And is there a way to survive, you know, doing that? So how long between that moment and Harvest Media and the book Recapturing the Wonder, Transcendent Faith in a Disenchanted World? Yeah, the, the book was a big part of – writing the book was probably a, a significant uh, part of sort of processing where I was in my calling. That's not That stuff's not in the book. But uh, in terms of what was going on in my life around writing that book, that was – What was going on that you um, didn't put in the book? Yeah, what was going on – the church was going through a, a lot of transitions, trying to figure out how do we – how do we – how does the how does the church structure to thrive as a four thousand member community um, with four locations and four lead pastors and all of this? So there was a lot of internal conflict in the church. It was a hard season, um, and so I think I think I was experiencing that tension. I was experiencing my own kind of inner conflict of uh, feeling feeling stuck in a role that was uh, administrative and bureaucratic and not very, you know, not very creative. Um, and then I think at the same time, like in the midst of all this, just spiritual darkness, like it was a, it was a spiritually dark season for me. Um, and I had to go, I had to go on a real inward journey to even figure out like, where am I? And what do I have to say? Do I have anything to say? I had this book contract, you know, and I was 10 months into writing the book and I was still stuck on the first chapter. I rewrote the first chapter of that book 10 times. Um, and you're least. one of the only people that quotes Charles Taylor that I actually think read it. <laughs> I did read it. Yeah. Yeah. I read it and then I read Jamie Smith's shorter book and I wished I'd just read Jamie Smith's shorter book because yeah. it's it's pretty much all there. That's the move. That's the move. Yeah. But you're a five on the Enneagram, so you're, you know. Right. You so got to like, read the long form version. You don't feel like you've done your actual homework. You feel like a faker if you uh if you just read I would never book. feel like a faker. <laughs> I have not read that book. I've read lots of quotes, summaries, Jamie Smith's yeah. book. I would not feel like. But although I might actually read it. I'm going on vacation this week. It's one of the big books I might read. Yeah, there you go. All 900 pages. Have fun. Yeah. Although that's not an interview, so it's probably not going to happen, but <laughs> it's an aspirational dream. Yeah. Oh yeah, man! I'd love to interview Charles Taylor. That would be that would be fascinating. Do you think you would love it though? Because I think he would be really awkward. I mean, I read an account like last year when he was in New York, huh? And I think maybe he would not be a fun interview. I saw him speak. Uh, he came to Louisville and gave a talk about Thomas Merton, and uh, and it was phenomenal. And so I think so. I think he and I could, I could at least get him going on Merton, and we could try to go from there. I'd love to talk to him, for sure. All right, well, let's put it out there. Your lips to God's ears. Taylor, That's if right. you're listening. <laughs> come on, Charles, give me a call. Yeah, come on, let's do it. Let's can, put it out you there. You can find me. Let's do it. So you were saying about the book, like you're, you're kind of, you're in the midst of it. And I mean, it, it, it reads like a book that was post-transition so that i i mean like i guess that's why you had to rewrite it so many times (laughs) well it it i mean when i talk about when i talk about i think there's a place in there where i talk a bit about the disciplines as kind of a lifeline like that was really true for me my my life was was crazy hectic and stressful um because of what was going on inside the, the life of the church and the disciplines became these sort of anchor points for me on a daily basis um, just contemplative practices, praying the Psalms, um, 
you know, consistent fasting and things like that. They were just these anchor points that kind of connected me to something bigger. And, and what was the denominational background of the church? <laughs> the church is uh, Southern Baptist Church. So, so basically, when you were feeling stressed, there is like a, a red phone, right, in the church that you call a sort of Marian or Jesuit spiritual director that says, okay, you know, we have lots of churches that go from twelve to 4,000, and here's what you do at this stage. You, we give you, you know, some Ignatian things and the seven-story mountain and other things, <laughs> no man is an island, and you just work it out, right? I mean, were, 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 were you already engaged in discovering that stuff? Mm-hmm. Or was it, or was it the sort of breaking point? They're like, all right, I gotta find like, some new tools. Right. I mean, the tool belt is pretty much empty. No, I'm I'm lucky that uh, I had a mentor when I was, you know, when I first kind of started to take faith seriously when I was a teenager. Who it's a guy named Mike Frazier. I actually dedicate the book to him. Um, who at 16 years old was handing me Richard Foster's A Celebration of Discipline and. Uh, the seven story mountain and um, Dallas Willard and really sort of introduced me to that. It was kind of the Renovari stream of, of spiritual disciplines and practices. So what was his role in your life? I mean, what was he, he was a pastor. uh, He was a, he was a music minister at the church I grew up in. And so I was this 16 year old kid that played guitar. They needed a guitar player somehow or other. Those, those connections got made. And then he kind of just took me under his wing at the time and, you know, would meet with me every few weeks and hand me a book. And it wasn't ever anything formal or anything. It was just kind of, it just kind of happened real naturally. Were your parents part of that church? I mean, yeah, yeah. We'd been, I went to that church starting when I was about 10 years old, right up until we planted Sojourn. So are you thinking as you're writing this book, like, hey, I'm thinking of Mike, Fra- the Mike Frazier's and the me on the end of that. Like, if you don't have these tools, like, like this was a lifeline for me. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's giving me books. Yeah. And several years later, you know, decade, probably more than a decade later, right? Yeah. I never realized that they would become so important. The vital yeah, that, lifeline like that they are. That's true and I think I think part of what happened in the process of writing the book um I I think what what happened in the process of writing the book was I came to this sort of this much deeper understanding of where where my soul was at. Um the disconnect between my sort of day-to-day operative experience and uh, and what I would have written down on a piece of paper to say, well, I believe these things about the universe, about the world, about how it works. Um, I believe God's present and active. I believe that there are no coincidences. I believe that, uh, you know, creation and the body and all these different things have incredible meaning and there's great goodness and joy to have in all of them, right? I could write all, I would have written all of that down, um, but my day-to-day experience was somewhat, it was somewhat disjointed from all of that. Um, and so the disciplines, what I began to see is that spiritual disciplines could be a way of connecting the dots between what I, what I knew, quote-unquote, about the world and what my lived experience was. Um, and Jamie Smith's books were really helpful in thinking about that too and sort of thinking of rhythms of life as rhythms of, you know, these, these formative practices that really not only, uh, not only are good things to do in and of themselves, but are good things to do because they reshape our experience in a way that uh, reorients us to another way of seeing the world. Now you open the book and disenchantment is a pretty big theme. And yet it seems like you were disenchanted before you knew you were disenchanted. Right. right. And you know, the best essay I've ever read in disenchantment was, 
Love and its Discontent, Irony, Reason, Romance, Eva Elouz, who is a sociologist of emotions, which is, who wouldn't want that job? Um, she's, I think, at the <laughs> University of Tel Aviv or something. But she talks about how this, how, you know, this is the one thing everybody in modernity, whether you're kind of Marx or Weber, everybody's like, you know, everybody can agree that like this is the iron trap of modernity. We have different solutions. It's just basically where it plays out in dating. It's like you feel so paralyzed because you normally would date a coworker or somebody who grew up in your church or community and you just assume it's going to be messy and weird discovery. But you feel even worse because if you're going to first date with all the match.com info you have, what if it doesn't work out? Did I not screen it right? Like it's, it's, it's the trap, right? Of, and yeah, you talk in the book, like you, you, you're not naive, right? You don't want to live in a world without penicillin or, we're, right. you know, where women aren't voting, right. you know, or we have things like the internet, which enables harbor media. Right. But you want to kind of, you want us to sort of find enchantment again in a world yeah. that lives after the modern project. Right. Can, can, but we can't go back, right? Like, right, right. We can't, there's, there's ways in which we can't, uh, yeah, there's ways in which we can't go back and we wouldn't want to go back. I mean, uh, Taylor's really interesting on this whole idea because Taylor essentially says secularism in terms of its cultural, um, uh, in, in terms of its cultural framing of the world is neither a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. It's just the way the world is. And there's plenty of ways in which it's an improvement on the past and there's plenty of ways in, in which it isn't. But, um, he he tries really hard to say I'm, I don't pass judgment on it, um, but I want to call into question some of its assumptions, and so I I think that's a good way to think about it. Like we ultimately what what I'm hoping we can do is poke holes in the ways that uh, are are you know to use Taylor's phrase the secular frame right the secular. Um, uh, the sort of architecture, thinking architecture that we all have that shapes the way we understand the world. I want to poke holes in some of that, in some of that architecture and some of that framing and go, actually, you know, uh, things might not be exactly the way you think they are. And things particularly might not be the way that you've, you've been wired up to think they are, you, the way you've been wired up to experience the world via the way that you've lived your life so far. Um, to, to put that a little better, we lived in a world where stories and practices have shaped us in a certain way, and we've come to expect the world to operate on, you know, by a set of rules that those stories and 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 whatnot have have laid out for us. What Christianity does is it raises objections to a whole bunch of those assumptions, um, and I think through through practices we can begin to sort of actually experience the world in a different way. That's what I, that's where I would say disenchantment doesn't, uh, uh, we're not trapped by it entirely. Um, and there, there are ways like through practice, there are ways to experience, you know, to use the title of the book that wonder, right? Like, uh, transcendence, um, uh, a real, a real spiritual experience of life, like soulful living. I want to hear more about the entirely about the what? I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it 
because of the conversations you find here. Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, and David Zoll. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. The Entirely, because you said we're not trapped by Entirely, because it seems that's where so much of it is, right? Like, in that, on one level, so much of what I think is profound about your book, well, the entire book is profound, but I think what attention, and this is part of its profundity that runs down the middle of the book, is there's a lot of sort of Christianity as a gospel, as gospel, right? A new announcement that brings the end to the world of religion, right? Like, right. And, and, and you have some great Robert Capon quotes. I'm a huge Robert Capon fan. Who, and yet the irony of your book is the irony of Robert Capon's life. He's saying this in the Northeast at a pretty establishment-ish Episcopal church while also writing for the New York Times, doing book and food and wine reviews, you know, things like this. So, like, is this the, the challenge? Like, it, it, it's, he's in a church that's tr- thoroughly traditioned, and yet he's got to figure out a way to let the gospel critique the traditions mm-hmm. and yet let them be meaningful traditions and practices. Yeah. And yet not try to build the ladder up, yet receive the gift of faith coming down. That's the end of religion. And yet in the end of the day, you're caught in religious practice. So how do you invest meaning in disadvantaged or disenchanted religious practice? Well, they probably are actually disadvantaged as well as they come after the light men. I mean, the pre-modern time is a worship leader. You're right. not worrying about any of this. Like, well, I mean, you're probably worrying about because there's still cynics and stuff, but the prevailing culture doesn't make everyone a cynic. So it's part of the tension that I sense in the book, like how to integrate these two realities, like this mm-hmm. sense of the gospel as a radical critique with the Enlightenment project and with modernity. The gospel is in some sense a disenchanting, demythologizing project, and yet mm-hmm. it's also a re-enchanting project. Mm-hmm. But then you got these practices, and they can't be what they were mm-hmm. pre-Enlightenment, but then we, we, we do want them to be a window to something. Yeah, I think I really like the idea of um, – I like thinking through it through the idea of like our gut reactions, our instincts. You know, again, instincts are something that are – they're innate and yet they're formed. You know, um, you, you burn your hand on the stove and you 
you then get an instinct not to touch the stove, not to touch stuff that looks hot. Yeah. You take uh, a you Southern Baptist lesson. to an Episcopal or Catholic <laughs> worship service, they go, paganism! <laughs> right, right, yeah. And so I think a big part of what a big part of what is possible is there, there's a degree. When I say entirely, I don't think you can entirely, sh- you know, reshape your instincts. Um, it just doesn't. The world doesn't work that way. Our bodies don't necessarily work that way. But you you can, you know, uh, to use one of Dallas Willard's phrase, you can re- rethink your thinking. Um, you can reorient some of that, um, yeah. and that's what really provides the opportunity to. Like that's what that's what reenchanting the world feels like is is when you've done the work enough times over and over again to remind yourself um, and to pursue a a way of life that's engaged with God's you know living active presence um, that your gut reaction to the world assumes His presence um, in a way that it 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 wouldn't otherwise because of all the other formative stuff that's going on in the background. And is some of the assumption though? Is the move between assumption and looking, understanding that the God that we see here and experience will have resonant, there'll be continuity with the pre-modern saints, the fathers and mothers, and the testimony of the scriptures, and there'll also be discontinuity. Like, how do we, right. how do we attune ourselves to the fact that the discontinuity can still evoke wonder? Mm. To be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by the question. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to shoot straight. It's a, it's a bad question. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. It's a bad, well, I'm saying like, like, like we, I mean, cause you mine the pre-modern tradition incredibly well. And the conclusion of the book is incredible about sort of accepting that it's a journey and that there's going to kind of be letdowns. We're, we're pilgrims. And, and, Mm -hmm. and so like, Hey, look, I'm pitching the wonder thing. And yet like the wonder's not always going to be wonderful. (laughs) Right. I mean, uh, and the fact that you don't feel wonderful doesn't mean you're not seeing wonder. Like, sure. And yet, like, how do we uh, experience? Because a lot of the stuff you're mining is pre-modern, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, it's it's probably not going to feel the same way. Like, so how right. do we how do we reinterpret wonder to account yeah. for both like the gains and losses in every in every like mm-hmm. you know Augustine preps. Uh, late antiquity for, you know, you got people like Sylvanius on the one hand who are saying, if we just pray better, the Rome empire's not going to fall. You got people like Jerome who are like, you know, today's sort of apocalyptic is like, I'm just going to Jerusalem. You know, I've had some problem with the ladies anyway in Rome and I'm just going to pray till Jesus comes. <laughs> and I'm going to translate, you know, yeah. the, you know, yeah. the Hebrew Bible. So Augustine says, well, you know, if it's going to feel different, We're gonna, we might have to Christianize our new masters and that's going to mean death and resurrection. So what is, mm-hmm resurrected wonder look like mm-hmm. in light of the fact that we can't get what what pre-modern mm-hmm. saints got and and also we don't we get penicillin so we don't die from hangnails so i right. mean there are advantages and disadvantages <laughs> in the whole process right yeah yeah and in, and there's again there's some ways in which you know it might be fair to say that um the cultural situation in some ways is kind of value, value neutral culture is always deeply fallen and, and, um, you know, we're not, um, for instance, you know, we're, we're tempted, we're, we're not so much tempted by the pagan temple as we are the void, you know, the, the void is the thing that we kind of, you know, in secularism, 
facing the void and having the courage to say that there's nothing and that this is all meaningless. Like that's the that's the way Taylor talks about this. That's the way you look proud and strong and courageous in a secular age is you uh, you you stare the void in the face and say, you know, I'm willing to accept this. Um, in in the pre-modern world, it was you know it was God versus other gods. You know, in like in Israel, it was it was Yahweh versus Marduk and all these other these this other panoply of options. So I think I said that to say I think that what we're um, what we're going to end up experiencing is is a is a very contextualized version uh, within this secular frame, a very contextualized version of 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 wonder and of spiritual experience. Um, I think what what I would say is that the possibilities, uh, yes, there are limits to them because of just the way human nature works. Um, but the possibilities are much richer and much deeper than the world would have us believe and that we ourselves would have us believe. Um, but there's no getting around the fact that whatever our, whatever our spiritual experience is, it's going to be as embodied 21st century people with iPhones and, uh, you know, a desperate addiction to Wi-Fi. Um, I, I'm not a Luddite. Like that's, I think that's one of the things that's really important for us to to think about with with within all of this is that it, that the temptation is always to go well let's let's strip away the technology let's uh let's let's just get back to reading books and writing in journals and <laughs> doing all these very sort of analog ways of having spiritual experience um i think good things come from uh there are good things on the internet there are good things uh, there are there are good ways to sort of experience uh, and and to have spiritual practices that are very very contextualized as 21st century people, um, what I think we have to push through for is the realization that when we pray or when we read the Word of God, even if it's coming across us at, on an LED screen, um, this is nonetheless the Word of God. Uh, and when we, again when we pray, there is someone on the other end of the line who actually cares and hears and responds. Yeah. And you know, like one of your practices in your rule of faith, once years of vacation with no social media, no devices, right? Yeah. More or less. Yeah. Like the fate in the phaedrus Plato says, you know, lays like the analogy of like somebody invents, right. This is going to mess us up. Right. Writing. Cause people yeah. aren't going to memorize everything anymore. Like, <laughs> so like, why not no books? Like in the sense of like, just like, Hey, we've got yeah. what we remember of the great tradition yeah. in memorization. I mean, what line do we draw? Like, right. where do we, what technology, like what, what technology is, why, like, why no smartphones? For me, the biggest, the biggest thing is sort of the withdrawal from social media, because I find that that's the, the cheapest and easiest way to sort of quell anxiety and, and even to quell sort of a spiritual anxiety, it's a quick and easy way to be to feel connected to other people, and to feel affirmed by other people. Like I know there are certain things. Um, I'm sure if I got on my phone right now and I spent a couple minutes thinking about it, I could type up a couple of sentences about the tension between uh, Christian faith and the secular age, and put it out there and get like all the positive feedback. Like I could get like 50 likes and. 20 retweets, you know, and that would feel really good. And sometimes mm. I do that, you know, sometimes I do that unconsciously because I'm anxious and I'm frustrated or I'm depressed or whatever. And that's a way of 
that's a way of sort of scratching an itch that uh, that might also be better scratched by by just sitting with that darkness and going, okay, what's here? What am what am I? What's what's the emptiness I'm feeling? And is there a way to sort of hold that and let it be before the Lord, rather than try to solve it with like a quick pain relieving, you know, dopamine hit? And we do that all kinds of different ways. I'm hard on I'm hard on social media in particular because I recognize the ways in which it it functions that way for me. But couldn't books function that way on some level? Like, I mean, like for sure, Harry for Potter, sure. <laughs> for sure. And and again, I'm not I'm not a luddite. I'm not saying get rid of them entirely. I'm saying be aware of the ways in which you've allowed them to become some kind of you know, or allowed them to have some kind of addictive power. And and I think ascetic practices uh, are intentional ways that we disconnect ourselves from the things that comfort us. Um, in order to sort of unmask and uh, and and de-escalate their power in our lives, so I think there's a role for that. Doesn't mean you have to get rid of it forever. You can keep your Harry Potter books. You know, it's so funny. I've not read any Harry Potter books. My the wife has really read them. good. My wife has read them all. Yeah, I I, I, d- I don't. Uh, I mean, I will eventually. I think probably when we have kids. You should. Kids yeah. No, I'm I'm open. It's one of those things where like it's they're not, good. Yeah, I believe the, that. I think the fourth one is like genuinely a really, really great, really great book. So I read them all. I mean, I think they're all good books, but read them, read at least through the fourth one because the fourth one I think will kind of blow your mind. It's a great book. All right. I will st- I can't start with the fourth one though, right? No, you really can't. Well, you could, you could watch the first three movies and then start with the fourth book. But we tell people to restart with the book of John, right? Or more, or more. <laughs> yeah, What's your favorite yeah. gospel? What's my favorite gospel? I like them all, man. Or, or like just children. name your just name your top four, right? <laughs> Do you think there's something that happens with people that have been in faith a while? Like you start and John's your favorite because, like John three, like it's these deep, like cosmic Jesus statements, and then like you start reading people that are smart. Like Mark is so deep and cinematic, and Mark is amazing. I mean, Mark's amazing. Like it's right. And then as you, and then you're like, wait. John wasn't so bad. There's a lot in John that was actually dear. Uh, people are like, oh, John's the easy way. And then, yeah, John is. I've been brought back to John again and again. I don't know that's my favorite, but I have four favorites. Just like you said. Yeah. I'm I, with read? You, I have four favorites. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When we stop recording, I'm going to find out what's really your favorite. <laughs> can, I, can I read you something and get your reaction to it? Yeah, sure. So, this way, there's a guy. Did you know Tomos Halik? He's no. a. Czech psychotherapist. I came across him from a books and culture review, which is kind of a Christian New York Times book review kind of publication. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, it, it was a great review and he had a few books translated into English. My friend Bill and I started reading him and he basically became a priest behind the Iron Curtain. Like he was mm-hmm. friends with Havel and he couldn't get into the bullshit seminary in Czechoslovakia because even though it was controlled by the government, they're like, well, even though it's not real Christianity, it's still, he can't get in because so he had to become an under because he, he might mean it, right? He became a psychoanalyst, and uh, he baptized thirty-two converts at Easter in the Czech Republic. I mean, now he teaches. Like Charles Taylor is one of his teachers. They flew him in in undergrad seminary and like just taught a handful of guys. Like, wow. but uh, he says this, and and as I was reading your book, this passage came back to me again and again because you're straddling a lot of hurdles right like disenchantment modernity and not wanting to go back like how do you receive the gospel and yet have practices that aren't ladders up but grateful offerings back up right 
So he says, um, Young mentioned somewhere that indigenous tribes of primitives still living in an ancient way of life reconciled with nature and original human nature distinguished between small, private dreams and big dreams that are of significance for the entire tribe. I have always thought of Nietzsche's scene with the herald of God's death in the gay science as the record of a dream, but a big dream with prophetic significance for our entire tribe. At the same time, I felt that the message, God is dead, is only the first sentence, which must be followed by another, a second sentence, in the same way that Good Friday was an important message to us from God. But it was not the final one. God is dead. That sentence uttered at the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years. Maybe it was only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing something of God's message to us. A God who has not endured death is not only truly living, it is not truly living. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter. Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith, of our communication with God, who is concealed and returns again to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal word to speak to them once more. That's really good. Yeah, I, I feel like Halik has, for me, he's, in some of it is he's so far left, he's right. Like he's so far, you know, like he's so far beyond the issues we're dealing with that he's ahead of them. Like he's, I mean, that, seeing the disenchantment as part of a new resurrection, mm-hmm. like where we'll have a sense of being born again. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can tell, I mean, I think there's so many things you could point to um, in, in the broader culture where no one's content with where the modern project has gotten us. Um, very few people are anyway, maybe Richard Dawkins is. Um, He's but, not content because no, part of he's, the modern project he's a for miserable him, son of a guy. But, and also, you know, it's interesting. You, have you seen that documentary where with uh, Christopher Hitchens and Doug Wilson? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. At the end, when they're drunk, like, or at least Hitchens <laughs> is drunk. Yeah, Wilson's buzzed, right? That's all he could ever say ever gets. But And he said that... Um, uh, Dawkins said to him, if you could eliminate every believer, if there was one last believer, would you try to convert them? And Hitchens says, no, I wouldn't. And I don't know why. Like, Mm. there is a light of faith in Hitchens that for all his antagonism, he could see the beauty of of this thing that even though he framed his life against it, (laughs) he needed it, you know? Oh, yeah. No, there's, there's, Hitchens has a, I, I mean, I just admire the man as a, as a writer in so many ways. He was such a brilliant writer um, and a beautiful writer. Uh, and even though I think he's profoundly wrong about some things, of, of all those, you know, of him, Sam yeah, Harris, like, and all the others. Like the Iraq, the most, like the Iraq War. <laughs> <laughs> he's, like, he's like the most Christ-haunted of that whole crew in a, in a way that I find fascinating. Um, but, yeah, I think there's just all kinds of— there's all kinds of cracks on the surface in terms of, uh, you know, the triumph of secularism. Like, well, we're also, you know, we also have the rise of uh, transcendental meditation. It's it's bigger than ever. Um, you know, you you still have people who are, you know, you have millions of people who tune in to Joel Osteen every Sunday. 
Like they're they're looking for something. There's an itch that's getting scratched. You're there. saying you don't tune into Jolestein. I don't tune in. Not Jolestein. every Sunday. Not every Sunday. Right. Sorry. It's like, <laughs> I've I've never I've never tuned in. Well, no, I, I I would I watch him. him. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah we, no, when he comes on the TV, I stop. I mean, if it like, yeah. if I'm scrolling through, I see I don't stop. I mean, I no, I do intentionally watch Fox News. I love Fox News. Well, it's, that's good. It, it's like pro wrestling, like the five. <laughs> I try to watch. I love the five. I love that. If only for Kim Garfoyle's shoes. I mean, like I, I watch the five. I love Fox. You know, John Stewart's right. You know, what's great about Fox. They do good television. Uh, here, here we are at the top of the hour. Are liberals ruining America? And they say it like, I don't know. They're going right. to really figure it out. Maybe they are. Maybe yeah. they are. Well, you know, yeah. they do good yeah. television. You guys at Harbor are trying to be professional about media. You should take some news. You should do lead-ins yeah. like that. We need to get a little more. Uh, yeah, we need to get. Can we? Re- can we with find? The hot take. Can we find transcendence in a modern <laughs> world? <laughs> Tune in next. I don't- I don't think that'll get us any clicks. I think we've got to be uh, talking about Melania Trump's stilettos. Like that's. that's I was n- I was not offended by that. I wasn't either. Yeah, I think like she's a beautiful woman. She's a supermodel. Is she is a person that has got a complicated marriage. I mean, she's probably <laughs> got to like close her eyes and think of money a lot. Like, oh you know what I mean? Like, I, I, and yet she's a great. She's a mom, right? Like. And her kid yeah. seems like, and she seems like she cares a lot about, <laughs> and, and, and it's complicated right? because she didn't, she didn't. Well, I think for her, for her to put on a pair of stilettos is, that's as, that's probably as comfortable for her as us putting on a pair of Chucks is. Like, yeah, she's yeah, not thinking she could, about it. she could run a 40 yard dash in stilettos. I mean, yeah, that, probably faster yeah. than a, you or I. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like, like guys don't appreciate what women can do in heels. So I mean that. But also, you think about this. Like, she didn't marry Donald Trump in a vacuum, right? It's complicated. And like everybody, she's complicated. And she looked great. I thought she was, you know, she was. <laughs> and you know, she's figuring it out. Like, I mean, who knows why anybody marries anybody? But if if there comes a day where she writes her like her honest memoir, I'll be the first one in line. To oh, buy it, I would I'm totally. Fascinated. Oh gosh, I would totally read it. How yeah. many people in your congregation are Trump voters? Um, I would say it's significant, a significant number. Um, we held a, so we held a, a faith and politics forum about a year and four months ago with Russ Moore. Um, and obviously Russ Moore's position on Trump, he's made very, very clear. He was a never Trump guy. And uh, we got a lot of flack and a lot of pushback from members of our congregation. Uh, there were people in our church who threw parties to celebrate Trump's win. Um, so, uh, like inauguration parties and stuff like that. So, there's a significant number. There's also, you know, I would say there's a very significant number of our church that are on the other end of the spectrum. Um, people who, I mean, I remember there was there was a Sunday morning where uh, – uh, we were serving communion and one of the guys in one of the lines serving communion was wearing an, an Obama t-shirt and it created like, it created a mild controversy of like, Hey, do we, that's distracting. Like, is that a, is that a wise thing to do? Uh, do you think if to, it had been a Repu- to a Republican president, people would have said the same thing? I think so. If it had been Trump, they definitely would have said the same thing. But if it was just George W. Bush or H or Reagan, I don't know. I I I think because of 
there is sensitivity in our church around politics because people do know that there are people on both ends of the spectrum. I mean, that's, that's very true of Sojourn. Like, this is a church where people are at all kinds of different ends of the political spectrum, and so we're sensitive about it. Um, so I think, I think in that case in particular, it would have, uh, um, yeah, it would have, it would have been commented on either way. So did you? I mean, I'm guessing you didn't vote for Donald Trump. No, I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I did didn't vote, vote for Hillary Clinton either. Yeah, uh, I you were getting. Oh wow. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The protest vote. Did your state? Yeah. Who'd your state go to? Your state went to Trump. State went Trump. Yeah. yeah. Big time. Bigly. Big. Bigly. Big A lot of people are losing Big their health care. Yeah. <laughs> I like Evan McMullen though. Yeah. I mean, the guy had the courage to stick his neck out there and be a be a lightning rod. Um, for me, I, my conscience, for a variety of reasons, led me that direction. So we could we could go a long time in that in that direction if you want to talk politics. But yeah, that was what happened for me. But I wouldn't, you know, I've listened to your podcast and read your book. I wouldn't, it was an honest question. I wouldn't have guessed hmm. who you would have voted for. So what I guess that uh, after you had told me third party, I almost said Gary Johnson, but that you're not like libertarian. You're kind of, you have a sort of Niebuhr type five Christ transforming culture, right? Like you're kind of Niebuhr. <laughs> you like, you like that book. I would guess a lot. Like, yeah. yeah, I think that book yeah, is you're right. is incredibly deceptive because it should be <laughs> type five should be in the middle. It's actually the centrist view, but then it's at the end right. as the captain. I, there's so much yeah. right and wrong with it. I'm a Reinhold man, not a, a church. Yeah. Although actually, I think the meaning of Revelation is an incredibly powerful book. I think that was one of his best books. Um, huh. I don't I don't know that one. It's all about like it's basically the dialogue between Bart and Trouch, like faith and history. Oh, interesting. interesting. And how do you how do you and that's the world. It's basically he's trying to have an orthodox doctrine of revelation in light of disenchantment. And how do you hmm. not be pre-modern and yet be orthodox? And I yeah. mean, look, I, I I would take Bart over Ernst Trouch, although I love them both. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So you would have guessed I was a Gary Johnson guy. Well, initially, but then your things. I Evan McMullen. If you so. Now I could piece it together. I can piece Evan McMullen together better because you're a civic society guy. Yeah. If Jeb yeah, Bush true. should be the nominee, would you have voted for Jeb Bush? Uh, gosh. I didn't know we'd be talking about this. Uh, yeah, I probably would have voted for Jeb Bush. He had the best slogan, right? Jeb! Exclamation mark. <laughs> Jeb! <laughs> it, 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 it conveys excitement because I'm exciting. Well, the problem that he had for himself was um, experience and competency, which seems like that was no one was interested in that uh, last year. So, poor guy, poor yeah, low energy Jeb. But you know what's interesting about this is that, like, how much would be different, and how much wouldn't be? I mean, on some levels, like Korea, North Korea wouldn't. Other things like just the public discourse. But when Scott Pruitt was nominated as the EPA guy, right, guy who wanted to dismantle the. Um, Right. Yeah, which wherever you are politically, that might be a good idea. Bad idea. Jeb Bush tweeted out, "My great choice, my friend Scott Pruitt." Like, right. so we probably would have got Gorsuch, right? Uh, and Gorsuch actually might have been one of the more reflective person because the Heritage Foundation said, "Where Trump goes, I'm gonna let to let my friends at the Heritage Foundation give me a list." And the guy at the Heritage Foundation, we can't trust this guy, so I'm leaking the list. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I mean, like on one level, it's interesting how much the the actual person in power means i mean right. it's, it's hard to we don't know 
Well, and it raises the question too, you know, so if, if Jeb had been the nominee or if uh, Rubio had been the nominee or whoever, uh, could they have, you know, could they have beaten Hillary Clinton? Um, you had this weird, you know, uh, weird's the wrong word, but you had this profound populist rage that came behind Trump in a, in a, in a big way. Big league, big league. Um, big league. <laughs> so, um, who knows? I mean, what happened happened and here we are. That's, there's not, there's not much more to, not much more that I have to say about it. Do you, do you think, has the Trump presidency in a weird way, has it been healing in the sense of, Look, I mean, I've seen like people. They, no, they did. whatever you're gonna say, the answer is no. Oh, Healing, I, no. Well, well, I was just thinking. All right, you're right. Okay, now, okay, not maybe the worst six months, yeah. But uh, now, as people like, I saw a focus group in Pittsburgh of Trump voters, and they're pretty much like, "Hey, we're kind of like, is there this? Uh, hey, we all can agree, and you're agree. This is probably not what any of us thought it would be, or some of us thought or we can all agree." We would rather not have this, or is it just sort of like people just can't back away from their vote? It's like a sacred thing. Like it's like attacking someone's mother, you know, e- you know, if you're the in-law or something. Is it just yeah. still like too hot to touch? The, pe- the people that I know that are Trump voters are still they're standing by him and defending him in, in the exact same way that they stood by him and defended him during the uh, during the elections with all the, you know, with the crazy news clips and all that kind of stuff that was coming out. There, there was always a, there was always a defense. There was always an explanation and there remains. So, I mean, my dad's like a, a huge Trump guy, just loves him. And, really? Uh, oh yeah. Just lo- like has the make America great again hat. Uh, he, and means it, you know, and are you, are you guys close? Uh huh. Yeah. No, I love my dad. But we, so, uh, we really we can't talk about these things because I we we live in different planets. So okay, so but can you can you just say this? No, no, no hold can, on. A second, can hold you on just say this? Stuff. We can, can bring you, this back. I'm gonna, you, reel, I'm gonna reel this back in. Can you just say that, Dad? I voted for a guy that doesn't <laughs> wouldn't really believe in global warming, would still cut taxes for the rich, blow up the deficit. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> like he's you know he's not he's he's part of a sort of Christian sect. But he has better morality that we both believe in. I mean, really, we both believe in the same things. <laughs> you couldn't. Yeah. Do, you couldn't do that. I couldn't do that uh, for a variety of reasons. But uh, no, so the there was no there was no productive conversation around this. And and I would say to bring it back to Fox News, like, and this is and again, sort of reeling it back in, like the power formative practice. If you spend. Uh, if you spend 30 to 40 hours a week watching cable television, whether you're watching Fox News or MSNBC, that becomes your reality. And anything outside of that bubble is just totally incomprehensible. So, How many hours a week do you watch HBO? <laughs> exactly one. What did you think of Game of Thrones? <laughs> no, I, you know what? That's not true. We watch John Oliver as well. Um, and, is, uh, is Game of Thrones the hour or... Game of Thrones is the hour. Yeah. yeah, we watch Game of Thrones. I just wrote a piece uh, about that for Mockingbird. It, 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 it took, did you really? Yeah, it took me to the end of it. I've been rereading mm. Paul Tillich for a few reasons. And like, if you told me my 20s, I would be really reinvestigating Paul Tillich. Right. I feel like my 20s was spent studying stuff that, like, you know, it's very strange. And, and not like funny. I mean, I was, I was not raised in the church. It was just studying mm-hmm. more confessional, orthodox kind of stuff like Augustine, Karl Barth. 
Aquinas, Calvin, but sure. I find, but I think what's interesting about that show is that it's set in a pre-modern fantasy world, but all the characters have late modern anxieties. It's why right. none of the characters that are compelling are ever very religious. Like the mm-hmm. main, because the religion is pre-modern. So it's yeah. like saying, and so what brought it to the fore was the Night King's army. Cause like, oh my gosh. All of this is below the surface. We're all wondering because of family woundedness and trauma and things like this, if anything is meaningful. And now, most pre-moderns don't have access to extinction-level events. Right. And that just destroyed the mythology. I'm like, wait, this is why we love this show. They've set late modern anxiety in a pre-modern world, which is really different than like Lord of the Rings or other fantasy kind of thing. It's, it's a, it's an, yeah. he's, he's a genius in that he's oh, yeah. imported late modern anxiety into a pre-modern fantasy world and it doesn't seem contrived yeah well and then the, and then the ultimate enemy you know then is just death incarnate it's just pure death well it's not even death like, that's it, the great it's fear. not death it's death with no meaning because right if, even if you don't believe in the afterlife which parts of jews in the old testament probably didn't your progeny will carry on your legacy but well if Global warming is true. If the sun burns out, you know, whatever. It's like Ernst Becker in the Isle of Death. It doesn't matter why project. No one's going to make a statue right. to me. Or, you know, even if I'm sort of the Willie Loman tragedy, death of a salesman, I'm never going to have a kid in nine generations going to say, discover me. Hey, the New York yeah. kind of middle-aged salesman gave birth to this. There's no hope. <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. that is the thing that your book is speaking to, right? Like that's disenchantment all the way down. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I include a quote in there from uh, from Louis C.K. who you know who kind of describes this moment where he had to pull over to the side of the road because he was overwhelmed by this uh, Bruce Springsteen song. He has to pull over to the side of the road and just cry. And you know, he makes the comment, you know, that's being a person. This sort of deep down, uh, this deep down knowledge that it's all for nothing, and you know that we're alone in the universe and that we're going to die alone and that it's all for nothing. And and he says that's, that's being, he actually says exactly this. He says, that's being a person. Um, he says, that's why he won't let his kids have cell phones because he's afraid they'll distract themselves away from that feeling of emptiness and anxiety. And he thinks you just have to, you have to li- just live with that. Um, and I think, <clears throat> I think, uh, I think that anxiety is something that, a whole lot of ordinary everyday Christians experience, but couldn't necessarily articulate um, if they give themselves space in their lives for contemplative practices, they'll have to confront that. Um, but, but, I, but you can confront that with the hope of the gospel. Um, we never get there, which is why our, our experience of the gospel and our understanding of the gospel stays shallow because we just stay distracted. We don't have to, we don't have to, we don't deal with any of the anxieties. You know, we, we avoid them at all costs. But is it on some level modernity, right? Like, and this is your kind of capon thrust of the book, right? All is grace in the gospel is the destruction. And you know the great quote from Capon, which I think comes after the parable of the coin or the miracle of the coin and the fish. Like he he mm. minds parables that are hard to interpret for the best quotes. I mean, I, yeah, for sure. But it, so, like, uh, isn't Louis C.K. in the same place of? the death of God doing the practice. I mean, Tillich says that, you know, we have three root anxieties, right? Like, um, was it like fear of not being death, fear of guilt, and then fear of meaninglessness. And then he says, the kind of faith that makes the courage of despair possible is, is the acceptance of the power of being, even in the grip of non-being, even in the despair about meaning, 
being affirms itself through us. The, the act of accepting meaninglessness is in itself a meaningful act. It's an act of faith. Like accepting it, accepting the disenchantment, so there can be a death and resurrection of a new kind of reenchantment. Like not because I hear like yeah. where I hear you different than Rod Dreyer, right? Is like I think Rod Dreyer thinks that if we could move to like Montana or something, we can live in a world that's not disenchanted anymore. It's almost geographic. If you can just find a space, right? Like, and we can get enough people. Now we'll still send via the internet and other things, you know, our disenchant, uh, you know, our sort of Benedict um, memes and Twitter accounts, and everything. Like that. But, but, but we have a a, a a a a membrane that's permeable in the right way. <laughs> like, it only goes out right. and not goes in. But I like I think people could misread your book, right? As as and it would be a severe misreading. Uh, as sort of, hey, let's go back. And I think, like, you're mm-hmm. actually sort of saying the way is eschatological. It's pilgrimage, right? It's yeah. it's all grace, <laughs> and the practices yeah. are graces, and they're not they're right. not like building a ladder up, but they're constant ladders held down, yeah. uh, even when it doesn't feel like that. As we yeah. are carried forward, I, I have a phrase in the book that. Uh, where I, I say they're, they're invitations, not obligations, ways of being with God, not appeasing him. And I, I use that phrase all the time when I talk to people about, about this stuff, because I think, you know, it took me, I had, I had a wonderful mentor who introduced me to the disciplines. They became life-giving. <laughs> this is, this is, this is probably a perfect thing to say on your podcast. And I'll get in trouble in other places for saying it. They became life me, life-giving to me. Um, when I realized that they were in some ways uh, meaningless in and of themselves, um, powerless in and of themselves. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Ineffective in and of themselves. Um, rather, they were ways, rather than it being something that meant, that said something about who I was and what I was capable of doing, they are, they're, like I like your phrase of ladders down, it's, it's an open door that's sitting there waiting for, you know, that's waiting for us to walk through it. Um, and that was what, you know, when I talked to, when I talked earlier about like how, how they became this sort of lifeline and this anchor point for me, that was, that was what turned that, uh, turned that experience for me. Hmm. Um, for sure. Hmm. Hmm. So you talk, um, elsewhere in the book about the danger of reading the Bible as a choose your own adventure book. Mm -hmm. And, how that can be like a negative thing. Can I read you one more thing? Sure. So this is from uh, a book, um, Abandon Me, by, I think Melissa would call me a friend. She's coming back on the podcast uh, after I get back from vacation, which will be at the Jersey Shore, my favorite place. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite places. Uh, Melissa who? Phoebos. Um, she, she, she's been on Fresh Air. She's, she wrote a book called Whip Smart. I mean, she was... Um, Got into sex work as a dominatrix while she was using heroin. Kicked both. Um, now she finished an MFA. She teaches English. She wrote a great book on abandonment. Um, it's called Abandon Me. Uh, and she talks about like being abandoned by her birth father and was, re- and then was abandoned by her sort of adoptive father. And then she later met mm. her birth father who was an evangelical Christian. And mm. she winds up at a church service. And the pastor was preaching on Jonah. And she writes this about Jonah, which is just one of the most powerful things I've ever heard. She said, Jonah, whose name means dove, is not brave. He simply exhausts all his other choices. The only thing left to choose is God's will. And even then, after proclaiming this prophecy, Jonah shakes his fist at the Lord 
His destiny does not give him peace. It enrages him. It's not what he wants. He begs to k- God to kill him, but God doesn't kill Jonah. God's mercy often doesn't come in the form of erasure. And the story of Jonah seems a parable of what I have often suspected, that life is a great choose-your-own-adventure story. Every choice leads the hero to the same princes, the same cliff. There are alternative routes, but there is only one ending if you make it there. Every love is a sea monster in whose belly we learn to pray. That's good. Yeah, Melissa's a great writer and a wonderful person. Um, but th- but that, like, because I think that, like, what you're critiquing is the choose your own adventure story and taking the Bible. You talk about the danger of taking the Bible out of its context, either in sort of liberal, sort of higher critical ways, and we just say, well, there's seven writers here and they're all in their own context, or trying to say, like, well, I'm in a choose your own adventure story and if I just get the Bible right, I'll make the right choice. But she frames life as this beautiful way that our choices, I mean, and, and, to my knowledge, at this point, Melissa doesn't identify in any uh, particular tradition, but she loves talking about God and Carl Jung and lots of other things. But that is, I, I feel like in some ways, right, what you invite people to in the practices, like you meet a God who always wins in some weird way. And there's circuitous yeah. routes you find in things like that, uh, even in moments of great disenchantment, can be enchanted in some way, right? Yeah. Because they're, they're bellies of sea monsters. <laughs> right. Well, it's it's why I end the book with with that contrast between Kerouac and Merton. Um, this idea that we need a way of life. U- ultimately, I think what the practices do is they attune us. Um, they teach us how to pay attention to to life in such a way that uh, that we're aware of it when you know to use your metaphor here. Like we're aware of it when the sea monster has shown up. I think we're just so tuned out. Um, I think we're so tuned out to 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 our experience as a whole and and I think again I think the root of so much of it is is this kind of pain avoidance and spiritual anxiety um we're just tuned out and and that's a that's a very comfortable place to be um hmm. but but only but only so far um um and I think there the interesting thing is I I think for most people who you meet in your life uh, I was going to say this earlier. I can't remember what we were talking about with this, but for most people you meet in your life who have a uh, who have an interesting spiritual depth to them, they've all been through some kind of significant suffering. Um, and I think that you know the the story of like what she says about being caught in the belly of the whale, you know, and 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 teaching us to pray. Um, that's that is everyone's story in one form or another. Um, if you want a life of intimacy with God, if you want to, if you want a refreshing uh, kind of spiritual experience, prepare yourself to suffer. There's no, there's no other way. I mean, there's no other way for name a character of the Bible whose uh, experience of God is rich and interesting and doesn't involve some kind of horrible suffering or loss. So maybe Enoch, the first one. <laughs> now he There's probably a... had the worst and they just kind of let him just kind of be sucked up it's interesting though that's one of my favorite sections in the book and if you were ever going to revise it i might put it first where you put the epilogue no nah, well i like the epilogue but where you put merton and Kerouac oh, yeah. in conversation yeah. you know Kerouac used to say things like the mercy of god is the only thing that matters i mean like yeah he i mean he was somebody that was so was so close yeah. to so much 
And you could take the boy out of the Catholic Church, but you couldn't take yeah, the Catholic Church out of, and, out of Jack I mean, I, I, my copy of the Seven Story Mountain is, is, is well, well worn. Yeah. So before we end, can I read you one more thing from. Sure. Um, this is from. Um, it's actually from one of Halik's books. Uh, it's his book called Patience with God, the story of Zacchaeus continued. And in the ellipsis, or in the intro, he has a few ellipses. And this is from Adele. Bastavros, who was apparently a very pious Egyptian layperson, a Coptic layperson who was a lawyer and very interesting Christian. But he says, patience with others is love. Um, patience with self is hope. Patience with God is faith. And I feel like your book is one that invites people in a disenchanted world to faith, hope, and love. I mean, and maybe that's a different ordering, <laughs> love, hope, and faith, or whatever. Or ever, you know, I think those are, right, I mean, love is the greatest of all the virtues, but and somehow we, they co-inhere together, but uh, I feel like your book is a great invitation uh, to that triad. And I don't know you very well, other than our <laughs> conversation, but I hope we cross paths. I, and I want to yeah. commend your book to all my listeners. Well, I really appreciate that, I, and I enjoyed uh, getting to connect here today. So thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my privilege. Anytime. I'll have you back. All right. Let's do it, for sure. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Mike Cosper for coming on the show. And please, please, please read his book, Recapturing the Wonder, Transcendent Faith in a Disenchanted World. Our conversation was enchanting, and so is the book. Thanks again, Mike, and thanks to you for listening. And until next time, fare thee well. <laughs>